Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Episode 5, Magic. Hello, gentlefolk all. It's time for a thematic interlude, one of the occasional sidesteps I'd like to take in this exploration of the world below the war in the heavens. So let's dive into the whole exciting, exotic, appealing business of magic. What is it? Where does it come from? How does it work? And the question that's on everyone's lips, how can I get me some of it? When you get down to it, magic is what sets the world below the war in the heavens apart from our world. That and the fact that there's an ongoing and obvious battle between gods and demons in the heavens above. And a struggle that's gone on since time began. Hard to ignore that. Still, magic, hand-waving, wands, pick a card, no, don't show me, keep it hidden. Stuff like that, right? Not exactly. The world below the war in the heavens certainly has magic as a viable and powerful force, but it works by its own rules. For us, it's fascinating, and so many books have been written about it. If you're really into it and want to do some background reading, I'd suggest getting hold of some of the more recent works, texts that have benefited from research and findings that have gone before us, uh, such as Heavenly Magic by Vanessa Kilman and Puissance and Power by U.L. Danderfield both careful and thorough works. And don't forget the seminal early 20th century effort, Magic in the World Below the War in the Heavens by Taubman and Insk, a tome that everyone since owes a lot to. Thick enough to do damage if you drop it on your foot, but it really maps out the history, extent and possibilities of magic in this fascinating world. big picture first, and this comes from my readings of the books I just mentioned. First of all, let's look at the origins of magic. Let's get this straight. Magic comes from the heavens. It's a bleeding obvious place to start, but it needs to be said nonetheless. The heavens are otherworldly, divine, exalted, and the world below the war in the heavens is of mundane stuff. So it's no wonder that the heavens are a source of something so evanescent. As magic. And once the connection had been made, heavenfalls had been sought out in order to enable the phenomena we call magic. In ancient times in the world below, uh, the war in the heavens, there came an understanding that some people just had an affinity for heaven-born magic. Some could sense the nearness of scales and other otherworldly artefacts. Some could fashion them despite their hardness and imperviousness, qualities that would defeat others. Some could see colour subtleties, others couldn't. And and this sort of magical affinity was as innate as musical ability is in others, or the ability to work with numbers or to spin tails. Refining and polishing this magical skill, that's another matter. Lots of scales, very few artefacts, and a vanishingly small number of divine body parts have been found scattered across the continent since the dawn of time. 
Originally, they were coveted simply because of their beauty. Only gradually was inherent magical power discovered. In ancient days, these finds were often used for weapons due to the, the, the power inherent to innate in these objects or the hardness or the sharpness of scales and so on. So that's how the adept school, uh, known today as fabrication, arose, working with these objects from the other world. In the modern world below the war in the heavens, magic is practised in a partnership between two distinct types of adepts. Theoreticians calculate, then draw plans and diagrams, balancing the various inherent properties of scales with the principles of magic and the effect that they're after. Then they hand over to fabricators who fashion the scales into power sources, magical power sources, usually with layers of plates that are at the heart of most magical devices. One without the other would be pointless. Not many theoreticians are as subtle and as dexterous as the finest fabricators, and very few fabricators have the insight into magical effects to calculate the required combinations of scales. Some of these magical partnerships are testy, others a lifelong meeting of minds, and a few are legendary. Other adepts besides theoreticians and fabricators are percipients and graders. More of them later, but it's enough to say that magical affinity is expressed in a number of ways. Next, let's delve into the beginnings of systematic magical theory. Now, I'm mostly getting this from Emmanuel Emavon here, uh, The Foundations of Magic in the World Below the War in the Heavens, which is pretty authoritative. He goes back to original sources, and his synthesis is pretty convincing. Distilling from this, uh, around about 300 years before the founding of Anarchist, uh, the longest enduring realm in the world below the war in the heavens, a realm that we've already explored in previous podcast episodes. So 300 years before Anarchist began, scholars and savants of the dialectical school in the early city-state of Perrin, <laughs> Perrin is long since extinct, but it was on the central southern coast of the continent apparently, these sages began to lay the foundations for modern magical practice. Unhappy with the haphazard approach of magical adepts to this point, as it ran counter to their mechanistic belief that the universe is a vast machine with everything in it apart that made it work according to a system that we as humans were simply too limited to understand, but nonetheless capable of grasping that cosmos ran on order and not chaos, well, these savants and scholars started to lay the foundations for magical theory and thus magical theorists were able for the first time to have a rigorous approach to the business of magic. Before this, the heavenly scales were prized simply for their beauty and mostly displayed intact. Although, of course, there were some mavericks who were trying to do magic and perform unusual feats with these heavenly objects, often with disastrous or erratic results. Regardless, as, as objects of beauty, the scales were fashioned sometimes into elaborate jewellery or ornaments that cast light effects, scintillations, colour displays and, and stuff like that. 
So they were prized as being aesthetic but not terribly useful. Now, this is a craft that's endured until the present day and virtuoso talents in this field are much esteemed with their artefacts changing hands for dizzying amounts. Oleana of Weyden makes moving sculptures, for instance, that hang from ceilings, and when they catch the slightest breeze or the dimmest of light, they chime against each other with musical notes of the purest sort. And let's just say she, she doesn't lack the customers. No mid-year sales with Oleana of Weyden. However, with great skills, uh, even in ancient days, it was discovered that scales uh, could be made into vastly superior edged weapons as long as one had an affinity for magic. And this is another craft that's still practised today. For instance, uh, there are societies of weapon makers still across the continent and some of them harbour secret ways of fashioning weapons that they keep to themselves. Uh, so they have specialties and some, some of these specialties fill an extremely arcane niche. The Edged Guild, for instance, solely makes small razor-sharp cheese knives that can be effectively used as concealed weapons and so they are. Uh, the Whisperers make throwing weapons of various sorts. The Upholders of Bluntness specialise in hammers and maces, while the Protectors make remarkable shaving razors that are very, very highly prized for that smooth, smooth feeling that lasts the whole day through. Similarly with armour, requires that magical affinity, that innate quality of being able to grapple with magic and so some people who had this tendency in ancient days they turned to making armour making scale armour if you like which isn't always actual scale armour if you get what I mean because the scales can be made into mail and plate and all sorts of other varieties of protection and this armour making is a discipline of extreme difficulty requiring almost religious dedication so difficult is it to fashion scales to that sort of Scale armour is almost impenetrable to ordinary weapons, is as light as wearing ordinary clothes, and it makes no noise when worn. So no rattling or clanking as the armour wearer moves about. Thus it makes it extremely useful for clandestine or nighttime attacks. It's hideously expensive though. A single breastplate uh, would cost more than a labourer could earn in a lifetime. This, of course, means that looting after a major battle was a uh, highly competitive affair with organised teams of looters ransacking bodies and so on. Ghastly, but very profitable. Now, perhaps the most arrogant or overreaching claim of the dialectical school was that all magic function could be classified under headings, uh, reduced to a schema, their detractors would say. But where are their detractors now, I ask you? I'll take you through the what become known as the Perennic Taxonomy of Magic. First, uh, first category, and perhaps the most astonishing one, is creating. Essentially, making something out of nothing using the power and the puissance and the capabilities of scales. Second category is changing or transforming, 
where, once again, you use the power of the puissance of scales to change something in various ways that need to be worked out ahead of time. It's no good trying to enact some magic to transform someone or something and making it up on the run. All sorts of problems happen that way. And that sort of thing goes uh, for all of the uh, magical phenomena that people have tried to enact, bring about over the century. It needs to be worked out beforehand. That's the job of the theoreticians, to leave nothing to chance. Just winging it with magic is the way to disaster. Third category is moving or shifting. So I suppose that's teleporting at expert level. Uh, The fourth category is communication, communication over a distance, being able to send messages or even voice and visions across distances. Very handy in a world where the fastest way to get anywhere is by horse or or by, by boat if you're lucky to have navigable rivers. The fifth category is controlling the, the business of being able to dominate somebody and to bend them to your will, if you like. Very difficult, uh, even with the most powerful, most puissant of scales. Then there's far-seeing. You might call it scrying if you want to get fancy there. Somewhat similar to communication, but it's being able to see at a distance, uh, monitoring. Very useful if you've got a kingdom or a realm with uh, border issues and you want to keep an eye on what's happening out there. Incursions of people you really don't want uh, coming into your land because they cause all sorts of havoc. And then there's illusion casting, which is the last major category. Just as it says, being able to make visions that aren't there. Again, useful in battle or in war if you can do it properly being able to double the size of your army, or at least double the size of what it looks like, in order to cow your enemies. And that is the Perenic Taxonomy. But I I add another one, and most of the experts in this field, they do put another one, and that's just the classic other or special combination where some adepts, some of the more clever, thoughtful, insightful theoreticians uh, combine some of these categories. So communication at distance with illusion casting, for instance, changing, transforming with moving and shifting. So that, of course, is possible. These aren't rules. These are just a way of describing the way that magic seems to work based on experience. Broadly speaking, the more complex the spell Uh, the phenomenon and trying to be affected, the larger the effect. So that also means the more magical puissance is needed. Better quality scales is what it comes down to. The Perenic taxonomy of magic, more or less, is still used today in the world below the war in the heavens, with perhaps more fluidity than the original and very rigid scholars of Perrin would like. They'd probably be offended, actually, but they were renowned for taking offence easily as they'd howl down combinations, blends and hybrid magic. they get red in the face and probably rend their garments, even at the thought. Back then, a minor thinker of Amon or Froinol, which is a small mountain town not far from Fremen, was actually tied in a sack and hurled into the sea to drown, merely for suggesting that creating and changing could be seen as aspects of each other. 
They didn't muck around, the dialectical school. Over the centuries, most magic has been practised by taking the Perennic taxonomy and getting practical. First, get your little bit of heaven, scales, uh, combination of scales, then work out the parameters that you desire and communicate these to someone who has the talent for shaping the heavenly substance into just the right sort of shape or confirmation to harness the inherent magical power, which makes it all sound much easier than it is. Of course, variations on this basic approach abound as adepts over the centuries have experimented with different approaches in order to achieve a competitive edge over their nominal colleagues. But broadly, this is the accepted and standard way magic is undertaken. Of course, this neglects the influence of the temple on the practice of magic. And believe me, you don't want to do that. Now, In the modern world below the war in the heavens, the temple is inseparable from the practice of magic. But this hasn't always been so. For instance, the temple really didn't exist as a coherent religion before the 5th century, before the concord of Ubtor uh, hammered out dogma from what was a raft of faiths, creeds and more or less deeply held convictions about the way a demonstrable war had been going on overhead since forever. In a lot of ways, it didn't have the problems of many early religions, like, well, the matter of faith. All the early temple elders had to do was stare down doubters and say, you don't believe us? Have a look up there. After the Concord of Abtor, the meeting of hard-headed administrators and wild-eyed zealots came to an understanding, the dogma, the hierarchies and systems were founded and quickly spread across the continent to become an integral part of nearly every community everywhere and their way of life. So, obviously, magic is older than the temple, but it didn't take long before the freshly organised religion saw that its role included not only proselytising, religious services of various kind, pastoral care and extracting money from the populace, but overseeing every step of magical practice wherever it could. Until today, we have the temple in a position of approval and certification of just about every aspect of magical practice, from the extraction and or removal of scales through to the grading and categorization of these scales, and eventually right to the trade. Naturally, for its efforts, the temple earns a fee for each involvement, which helps to explain why it's such a rich and powerful organisation. The relationship between the temple and magic began, as many important movements have, in Anarchist. It might have been the lingering effects of the nightmare years, but Daimon II, the second monarch of the Restoration I period, was notably pious. He cultivated a number of hermits, seers and self-declared prophets, and was especially fond of one called Badgerman who claimed to be able to tell the future by way of examining how gold coins fell after they were spun on edge. Naturally, thereafter, he kept the coins as holy relics. No fool, Badger Man, despite his lack of personal hygiene. In the second year of his reign, Daimon banished his entourage of seers and prophets and welcomed the newly constituted temple into Anarchist. 
he built the original chapel, for instance, uh, the one inside the stronghold. And later, the first part of what became the prime temple complex just outside the walls. While this didn't actually make the temple the official authorised religion of the state, such patronage, as you can imagine, was hugely influential. And the influence of the temple grew as a result. It wasn't long after this patronage began before the senior temple ecclesiasts declared that the work going on in the hypogeum, ever since Eucantha Anaquist had uncovered the immense sevenfold, the removal, categorisation and dissemination of scales, these ecclesiasts decided this was properly the business of the temple. After all, weren't they the earthly representatives of the gods dedicated to supporting the ongoing fight against the malevolent demons by way of offering prayers that were undoubtedly helpful in this cosmic battle, probably tipping the scales in the direction of a godly victory that was guaranteed at some unspecified but auspicious time when all true believers would be rewarded. Of course, this meant that the temple was the true worldly guardian of any heavenfall, and the only ones vouchsafed was such a duty. Just a thought. It seems to me that uh, the temple and its ecclesiasts are like spectators at a sport or even cheerleaders, hoping and perhaps believing that their support on the other side of the fence can make a difference to the performance of the team they're supporting, the gods in this case, and in some real but ineffable way helping them defeat the opposition. It's a neat metaphor, if a little disrespectful. Anyway, the adepts and artisans who had for the last 400 years established an efficient workface in the hypogeum looked at these temple interlopers and said, essentially, if you think that you're muscling in on our operation, you've got another thing coming. While the senior ranks negotiated this business under the watchful eye of Diamond II, according the appropriate respect to each party, well, while that was going on, Skirmishes, ambushes and brawls erupted in the darker parts of the Hypogeum and also in various parts of Lowtown, the settlements surrounding the stronghold and the Heavenfall. Now, Lowtown, by this time, the 5th century, was already a bustling urban area with some 20,000 residents, so plenty of room for brawls to roll through the streets. Eventually, Diamond II laid down the law. The temple had a right and proper part in authenticating scales, ensuring that they were indeed from the heavens and thus genuine. This was a major step in integrating the temple into the magical industry ever after. Indeed, it gradually inveigled itself into other parts of the process, becoming more and more essential, more and more rich, and more and more powerful, with the result that by the 8th century, no magical process, method, or application could take place without the imprimatur of the temple, a state of affairs that it was entirely happy with had no desire to change. This led to what Nurkan Imamoglu called the enduring weight of the dead hand of the temple, stifling innovation, invention, and progress in the magical arts millennium and a half, 1,500 years, where the temple would only allow a narrow range of magical applications, those it could oversee and approve. It was more than happy to keep the quo in status quo, 
thus keeping progress down, down, deeper and down. What sort of magical applications would the temple approve of? What would it allow scales to be fashioned into? Okay, until the modern era, it would only allow one, the production of a limited amount of magical arms and armour in perpetuation and honouring of the eternal battle in the heavens above. That, that was their rationale. Most of these weapons and armour, unsurprisingly, found their way into the armories of the rich and powerful. Fancy that. Two, things of beauty in honour of the perfection in the heavens above. For instance, uh, things like jewellery, sculptures, and in particular, royal regalia. Again, it's strange how many of these objects found their way into the homes of the rich and powerful, as well into the residences of senior ecclesiasts. Three, light-producing devices. Now we're getting hands on real magic stuff. Now, the temple approved of light-producing devices because light dispels the utter darkness the demons would bring upon the heavens and the world if they were successful. Now, so that meant the temple had no objections to magical lighting. In some, some instances, it actually enabled spectacular grandeur in major temples, which helps to inspire the sort of awe that guaranteed lots of adherence. Four, messaging devices. Now, this is one of the more recent applications that the temple allowed. Uh, so it was seen to aid the spreading of the Holy Word. Now, the most striking modern example of this is the continent-spanning communication array, which has been a mighty undertaking over the last three or four decades, allowing people on one side of the continent to speak to people on the other side, as long as they were able to get their hands on the very expensive magical devices needed to enable this. The fifth area that the temple would approve magic to be used in was, well, put it bluntly, uses that the rulers of each realm uh, would see fit. And that included, of course, their own personal use. Because the royal family is dedicated to one of the gods, and since the temple has always understood that keeping on good terms with rulers was important for its ongoing status. Category six of approved areas for magical development according to the temple, some minor regional magical applications, very closely supervised and guarded by the local temple and only after much investigation by all levels, all senior levels of the temple. Approval for such was very rarely granted, but there's a little bit of wriggle room there, if you like. With the temple having its hands, essentially, on magic and keeping magic development down, if you like, well, a special branch of the temple was dedicated to rooting out unauthorised magical use. Its investigations were ruthless, its judgement swift, and its punishment almost always death. A recent book by A.J. Sperling called The Hidden Arm of the Temple recounts horrified stories of informers torture and extirpation and you can hear actually how appalled the author is on every page it's well worth reading if you have a strong stomach 
naturally, this sort of merciless repression of magic uh, drove magical development underground. It seems to be a human instinct to push boundaries in both physical and intellectual ways, and the field of magic was no exception. The area of light-producing magic, for instance, was originally one of those, popping up several times independently across the continent and being quashed each time by the temple until one of its most senior ecclesiasts saw the way the wind was blowing and declared that light-bringing was a holy act and thereby authorised such magic. Quash or co-opt was the temple's way, a successful manner of operating for 1,500 profitable years, or at least until recently. The last century in the world below the war in the heavens has been a difficult one for the temple's program of maintaining itself. Progressive uses of magic have been flaring like wildfire and more and more ecclesiastical efforts have had to go into quashing them and into exerting discipline across the continent where local temples have been lax or even working hand-in-hand with local adepts in both granting regional approval for new magical applications and in overlooking unauthorised applications, especially when the utility of this sort of magic has been obvious to the people of the region. Pumps, for instance, in drought-stricken areas. Turning a blind eye has become more and more prevalent, even when the temple's investigators have dealt out punishment and made some of those figurative blind eyes literal, if you get my meaning. But a 1,500-year-old organisation that has been in power for that long, corruption is almost inevitable. Now, it could be that the world below the war in the heavens is on the verge of a magical revolution. Rumours abound of adepts who are risking their lives by exploring new avenues of magic, where heavenly scales are used to undertake tasks that would once have taken teams of horses, for instance. Or some of them are going in other directions to press beyond the realms of the ordinary, everyday experience into arcane, even bizarre areas which will press understanding in new ways. The possibilities are astonishing, but not if the temple has anything to do with it. And here's another aside. Magic is undertaken by the use of heavenly scales. I think we've established this. And various types of scales lend themselves potentially to different applications. Theoreticians and fabricators combine to make this work with magic a positive force for good because taking the scales from the bodies and the artefacts of the dead gods, well, magic could hardly be anything else, could it? Since the source of the magic is divine. Yeah, but demon scales are a thing. Think about it. There's a war in the heavens up there. Bits and pieces fall to the world below, the detritus of battle, the cast-offs, the fragments, the discards, and the forgotten, all plummeting to the mundane world. If these things come to us from the gods, well, that's only one side of the battle. What about the foes of the gods, the evil ones that they're actually fighting? Surely demon stuff would fall from the heavens as well. And yeah, it does. Uh, Manfred von Karlstein makes an irrefutable case that it's so in a statistical analysis of heavenfall items. But if it's irrefutable, then, then where are these demon scales? Once again, the temple has a role here, but it's not one that it likes to talk about. For centuries, the temple has seized all demon scales it could and has locked them away in its most secure vaults. 
It refuses to divulge where these vaults are or the nature of the demon scales or, or the numbers. It claims, with some justification, that it is protecting the world from demon scales. Protecting the world below the war in the heavens from what exactly? Okay. It seems that coming into contact with the demon scale corrupts one's soul. At least that's the temple's official stance. Details about this, like a lot of deep temple stuff, are hazy. But there's enough dread and direness in its pronouncements that juggling a handful of demon scales sounds like a really bad idea indeed. Something along the lines of having a couple of old corroding Soviet-era nukes in your garage while you sit on them and inhale fumes from that old flask marked biohazard that you found at the tip. Yeah, just like that. Magic in the world below the war in the heavens is difficult, with only the very best adepts able to undertake substantial magical phenomena as long as they have access to the most puissant scales, and as long as they undertake this magic according to the dictates of the temple. This is the way things have been for 1,500 years in the world below the war in the heavens, but things are about to change. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au Farewell! <laughs>